Section 9 of Chapter 24 of A History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 24, Section 9. In 1695 the pair went down together to their native country. The Parliament of that country was then about to meet under the presidency of Tweeddale, an old acquaintance and country neighbour of Fletcher. On Tweeddale the first attack was made. He was a shrewd, cautious old politician yet it should seem that he was not able to hold out against the skill and energy of the assailants. Perhaps, however, he was not altogether a dupe. The public mind was at that moment violently agitated. Men of all parties were clamouring for an inquiry into the slaughter of Glencoe. There was reason to fear that the session which was about to commence would be stormy. In such circumstances the Lord High Commissioner might think that it would be prudent to appease the anger of the estates by offering an almost irresistible bait to their cupidity. If such was the policy of Tweeddale, it was, for the moment, eminently successful. The Parliament, which met burning with indignation, was soothed into good humour. The blood of the murdered Macdonalds continued to cry for vengeance in vain. The schemes of Paterson, brought forward under the patronage of the ministers of the Crown, were sanctioned by the unanimous voice of the legislature. The great projector was the idol of the whole nation. Men spoke to him with more profound respect than to the Lord High Commissioner. His antechamber was crowded with solicitors desirous to catch some drops of that golden shower of which he was supposed to be the dispenser. To be seen walking with him in the high street, to be honoured by him with a private interview of a quarter of an hour, were enviable distinctions. He, after the fashion of all the false prophets who have deluded themselves and others, drew new faith in his own lie from the credulity of his disciples. His countenance, his voice, his gestures, indicated boundless self-importance. When he appeared in public, he looked, such is the language of one who had probably often seen him, like Atlas, conscious that a world was on his shoulders. But the airs which he gave himself only heightened the respect and admiration which he inspired. His demeanour was regarded as a model. Scotchmen who wished to be thought wise looked as like Patterson as they could. His plan, though as yet disclosed to the public only by glimpses, was applauded by all classes, factions, and sects. Lords, merchants, advocates, divines, Whigs and Jacobites, Cameronians and Episcopalians. In truth, of all the ten thousand bubbles of which history has preserved the memory, 
none was ever more skilfully puffed into existence none ever soared higher or glittered more brilliantly and none ever burst with a more lamentable explosion there was however a certain mixture of truth in the magnificent daydream which produced such fatal effects scotland was indeed not blessed with a mild climate or a fertile soil but the richest spots that had ever existed on the face of the earth had been spots quite as little favoured by nature it was on a bare rock surrounded by deep sea that the streets of tyre were piled up to a dizzy height on that sterile crag were woven the robes of persian satraps and sicilian tyrants there were fashioned silver bowls and chargers for the banquets of kings and there pomeranian amber was set in lydian gold to adorn the necks of queens in the warehouses were collected the fine linen of egypt and the odorous gums of arabia the ivory of india and the tin of britain in the port lay fleets of great ships which had weathered the storms of the euxine and the atlantic powerful and wealthy colonies in distant parts of the world looked up with filial reverence to the little island and despots who trampled on the laws and outraged the feelings of all the nations between the hydaspes and the aegean condescended to court the population of that busy hive at a later period on a dreary bank formed by the soil which the alpine streams swept down to the adriatic rose the palaces of venice within a space which would not have been thought large enough for one of the parks of a rude northern baron were collected riches far exceeding those of a northern kingdom in almost every one of the prorate dwellings which fringed the great canal were to be seen plate mirrors jewellery tapestry paintings carving such as might move the envy of the master of holyrood in the arsenal were munitions of war sufficient to maintain a contest against the whole power of the ottoman empire and before the grandeur of venice had declined another commonwealth still less favoured if possible by nature had rapidly risen to a power and opulence which the whole civilized world contemplated with envy and admiration on a desolate marsh overhung by fogs and exhaling diseases a marsh where there was neither wood nor stone neither firm earth nor drinkable water a marsh from which the ocean on one side and the rhine on the other were with difficulty kept out by art was to be found the most prosperous community in europe the wealth which was collected within five miles of the stadhouse of amsterdam would purchase the fee simple of scotland and why should this be was there any reason to believe that nature had bestowed on the phoenician on the venetian or on the hollander a larger measure of activity of ingenuity of forethought of self-command than on the citizen of edinburgh or glasgow the truth was that 
in all those qualities which conduce to success in life, and especially in commercial life, the Scot had never been surpassed. Perhaps he had never been equalled. All that was necessary was that his energy should take a proper direction, and a proper direction Patterson undertook to give. His esoteric project was the original project of Christopher Columbus, extended and modified. Columbus had hoped to establish a communication between our quarter of the world and India across the great western ocean, but he was stopped by an unexpected obstacle, the American continent, stretching far north and far south into cold and inhospitable regions presented what seemed an insurmountable barrier to his progress, and in the same year in which he first set foot on that continent, Gama reached Malabar by doubling the Cape of Good Hope. The consequence was that during two hundred years the trade of Europe with the remoter parts of Asia had been carried on by rounding the immense peninsula of Africa. Patterson now revived the project of Columbus, and persuaded himself and others that it was possible to carry that project into effect in such a manner as to make his country the greatest emporium that had ever existed on our globe. For this purpose it was necessary to occupy in America some spot which might be a resting place between Scotland and England. It was true that almost every habitable part of America had already been seized by some European power. Patterson, however, imagined that one province, the most important of all, had been overlooked by the short-sighted cupidity of vulgar politicians and vulgar traders. The isthmus which joined the two great continents of the New World remained, according to him, unappropriated. Great Spanish viceroyalties, he said, lay on the east and on the west, but the mountains and forests of Darien were abandoned to rude tribes which followed their own usages and obeyed their own princes. He had been in that part of the world in what character was not quite clear. Some said that he had gone thither to convert the Indians, and some that he had gone thither to rob the Spaniards but missionary or private he had visited darien and had brought away none but delightful recollections the havens he averred were capacious and secure the sea swarmed with turtle the country was so mountainous that within nine degrees of the equator the climate was temperate and yet the inequalities of the ground offered no impediment to the conveyance of goods Nothing would be easier than to construct roads along which a string of mules or a wheeled carriage might in the course of a single day pass from sea to sea. The soil was, to the depth of several feet, a rich black mould on which a profusion of valuable herbs and fruits grew spontaneously, and on which all the choicest products of tropical regions might easily be raised by human industry and art. And yet the exuberant fertility of the earth had not tainted the purity of the air. Considered merely as a place of residence, 
the isthmus was a paradise a colony placed there could not fail to prosper even if it had no wealth except what was derived from agriculture but agriculture was a secondary object in the colonization of darien let but that precious neck of land be occupied by an intelligent an enterprising a thrifty race and in a few years the whole trade between india and europe must be drawn to that point the tedious and perilous passage round africa would soon be abandoned the merchant would no longer expose his cargoes to the mountainous billows and capricious gales of the antarctic seas the greater part of the voyage from europe to darien and the whole voyage from darien to the richest kingdoms of asia would be a rapid yet easy gliding before the trade winds over blue and sparkling waters the voyage back across the pacific would in the latitude of japan be almost equally speedy and pleasant time labor money would be saved the returns would come in more quickly fewer hands would be required to navigate the ships the loss of a vessel would be a rare event the trade would increase fast in a short time it would double and it would all pass through darien whoever possessed that door of the sea that key of the universe such were the bold figures which patterson loved to employ would give law to both hemispheres and would by peaceful arts without shedding one drop of blood establish an empire as splendid as that of cyrus or alexander of the kingdoms of europe scotland was as yet the poorest and the least considered if she would but occupy darien if she would but become one great free port one great warehouse for the wealth which the soil of darien might produce and for the still greater wealth which would be poured into darien from canton and siam from ceylon and the moluccas from the mouths of the ganges and the gulf of cambay she would at once take her place in the first rank among nations no rival would be able to contend with her either in the west indian or in the east indian trade the beggarly country as it had been insolently called by the inhabitants of warmer and more fruitful regions would be the great mart for the choicest luxuries sugar rum coffee chocolate tobacco the tea and porcelain of china the muslin of dakar the shawls of cashmere the diamonds of golconda the pearls of karak the delicious birds nests of nicobar cinnamon and pepper ivory and sandal wood from scotland would come all the finest jewels and brocades worn by duchesses at the balls of st james and versailles from scotland would come all the saltpetre which would furnish the means of war to the fleets and armies of contending potentates and on all the vast riches which would be constantly passing through the little kingdom a toll would be paid which would remain behind there would be a prosperity such as might seem fabulous a prosperity of which every scotchman from the peer to the caddy would partake soon 
all along the now desolate shores of the Forth and the Clyde, villas and pleasure-grounds would be as thick as along the edges of the Dutch canals. Edinburgh would vie with London and Paris, and the bailey of Glasgow or Dundee would have as stately and well-furnished a mansion and as fine a gallery of pictures as any burgomaster of Amsterdam. This magnificent plan was at first but partially disclosed to the public. A colony was to be planted, a vast trade was to be opened between both the Indies and Scotland, but the name of Darien was as yet pronounced only in whispers by Patterson and by his most confidential friends. He had, however, shown enough to excite boundless hopes and desires. How well he succeeded in inspiring others with his own feelings is sufficiently proved by the memorable act to which the Lord High Commissioner gave the royal sanction on the 26th of June, 1695. By this act, some persons who were named, and such other persons as should join with them, were formed into a corporation, which was to be named the Company of Scotland, trading to Africa and the Indies. The amount of the capital to be employed was not fixed by law, but it was provided that one half of the stock, at least, must be held by Scotchmen resident in Scotland and that no stock which had been originally held by a Scotchman resident in Scotland should ever be transferred to any but a Scotchman resident in Scotland. An entire monopoly of the trade with Asia, Africa, and America, for a term of thirty-one years, was granted to the company. All goods imported by the company were, during twenty-one years, to be duty-free, with the exception of foreign sugar and tobacco. Sugar and tobacco, grown on the company's own plantations, were exempted from all taxation. Every member and every servant of the company was to be privileged against impressment and arrest. If any of these privileged persons was impressed or arrested, the company was authorized to release him and to demand the assistance both of the civil and of the military power. The company was authorized to take possession of unoccupied territories in any part of Asia, Africa, or America, and there to plant colonies, to build towns and forts, to impose taxes, and to provide magazines, arms, and ammunition, to raise troops, to raise war, to conclude treaties, and the king was made to promise that, if any foreign state should injure the company, he would interpose and would, at the public charge, obtain reparation. Lastly, it was provided that, in order to give greater security and solemnity to this most exorbitant grant, the whole substance of the act should be set forth in letters patent to which the Chancellor was directed to put the great seal without delay. The letters were drawn, the great seal was affixed, the subscription books were opened, the shares were fixed at a hundred pounds sterling each, 
and from the Pentland Firth to the Solway Firth, every man who had a hundred pounds was impatient to put down his name. About two hundred and twenty thousand pounds were actually paid up. This may not, at first sight, appear a large sum to those who remember the bubbles of 1825 and of 1845, and would assuredly not have sufficed to defray the charge of three months of war with Spain. Yet the effort was marvellous when it may be affirmed with confidence that the Scotch people voluntarily contributed for the colonization of Darien a larger proportion of their substance than any other people ever, in the same space of time, voluntarily contributed to any commercial undertaking. A great part of Scotland was then as poor and rude as Iceland is now. There were five or six shires which did not altogether contain so many guineas and crowns as were tossed about every day by the shovels of a single goldsmith in Lombard Street. Even the nobles had very little ready money. They generally took a large part of their rents in kind, and were thus able on their own domains to live plentifully and hospitably. But there were many esquires in Kent and Somersetshire who received from their tenants a greater quantity of gold and silver than a Duke of Cordon or a Marquess of Athol drew from extensive provinces. The pecuniary remuneration of the clergy was such as would have moved the pity of the most needy curate who thought it a privilege to drink his ale and smoke his pipe in the kitchen of an English manor-house. Even in the fertile Merse there were parishes of which the minister received only from four to eight pounds sterling in cash. The official income of the Lord President of the Court of Session was only five hundred a year, that of the Lord Justice Clerk only four hundred a year. The land tax of the whole kingdom was fixed some years later by the Treaty of Union at little more than half the land tax of the single county of Norfolk. Four hundred thousand pounds probably bore as great a ratio to the wealth of Scotland then as forty millions would bear now. The list of the members of the Darien Company deserves to be examined. The number of shareholders was about fourteen hundred. The largest quantity of stock registered in one name was three thousand pounds. The heads of three noble houses took three thousand pounds each, the Duke of Hamilton, the Duke of Queensbury, and Lord Belhaven, a man of ability, spirit, and patriotism, who had entered into the design with enthusiasm not inferior to that of Fletcher. Argyle held fifteen hundred pounds. John Dalrymple, but too well known as the master of Stair, had just succeeded to his father's title and estate, and was now Viscount Stair. He put down his name for a thousand pounds. The number of Scotch peers who subscribed was between thirty and forty. The city of Edinburgh, in its corporate capacity, took three thousand pounds. The city of Glasgow, three thousand. The city of Perth, two thousand.
but the great majority of the subscribers contributed only one hundred or two hundred pounds each a very few divines who were settled in the capital or in other large towns were able to purchase shares it is melancholy to see in the roll the name of more than one professional man whose paternal anxiety led him to lay out probably all his hardly earned savings in purchasing a hundred pound share for each of his children if indeed patterson's predictions had been verified such a share would according to the notions of that age and country have been a handsome portion for the daughter of a writer or surgeon End of section 9